Well, my name is Steve Lindemeyer. It's a joy for me to be with you this morning and as one of the pastors here at Citadel Square to have the opportunity to open up and continue our study in 2 Corinthians. So go ahead and get your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 3. AJ started us off last week in chapter 3, and I have a chance to finish the chapter this morning as we continue our study. If you're looking at one of the pew Bibles there in front of you, it's going to be on page 907, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're going to be looking from verses 7 all the way through 18. So whatever Father's Day lunch plans you had, just call and push back your reservation because you might not make it in time. We got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but this is going to be exciting as we dive into God's Word and see and hear what God has for us through His Word that, that the Scripture says His Word can penetrate even to dividing soul and spirit and joints and marrow and judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Are you ready for your heart and your attitudes to be put under the Word of God this morning? That's the privilege that we have as God is going to be transforming us more and more into His image as we dive into the Word of God together. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever struggled with your own sinful nature? In your desire and your pursuit of holiness and righteousness, you keep butting up against your own selfish desires, your own sinful nature your own inability to surrender to the Lordship of Christ. Or think about it this way in terms of trying to minister to other people and, and be a blessing in the lives of other people. Have you, ever, have you ever come up to the place where you just want to be more fruitful? You want to be more faithful? You want to see God empower you to be a witness for Christ among those around you in your workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood or, or at your gym? Have you, ever, have you ever been to that place? I know I have. Well, Paul, through 2 Corinthians, is going to have some encouragement for us in those two areas this morning. Not only being more and more like Christ in holiness and righteousness, but also being used by God as an instrument in His hands as we display His glory to the world and to those in our immediate vicinity. But Paul's going to go about this in a unique way. In order to get to the place where we're talking about our lives being transformed and us being used in his hands as tools for ministry, he's going to start by making a comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, which was a covenant of law under the leadership of Moses as the mediator between the people of God and God himself, and the new covenant, which is a covenant of grace by the Spirit under the headship of Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to do an incredible job in this passage of making a comparison and a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. We're going to take a look at that together, and then we're going to land with this idea of God using His Word, His Spirit, and His Son to bring transformation into our lives to make us more like Christ. Because you see, there, there was a certain amount of glory that came with the old covenant, but there was a surpassing glory that came with the new covenant, which leads to transformation of our lives into the likeness of Christ. 2 Corinthians, 7 verses, uh, 2 Corinthians 3 verses 7 through 18 really breaks up into two main sections. <clears throat> The first section is going to be verses 7 through 11, and in verses 7 through 11, Paul is going to lay out for us three comparisons and contrasts between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. 
And then verses 12 through 18, Paul is going to show us four results or effects of being ministers and people of the new covenant. So if you're a good note taker and if you remember to bring your handy dandy 2 Corinthians study guide with you this morning, I know sometimes I forget that, but I hope you got yours. I think we have a few left if you haven't picked yours up yet. But if you're a note taker this morning, it's going to be really simple. Three comparisons and four results. Three comparisons and four results between the old covenant and the new covenant. Let's pray together and ask God to bless the teaching of his word this morning. Father, we are your people and this is your word, your infallible, inspired, transformative, breathed out word of God. With that in mind, God, we come expectantly. God, would you, would you teach us this morning? God, would you open your word and allow us to see things in it that we've never seen and be able to apply it to our lives in very personal and practical ways that would ultimately make us more like you. That's our hope. That's our desire. And God, would I be so bold to ask this morning that you would allow us to see your glory this morning. Give us expectant hearts as we come to your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we jump into our passage, which begins with verse 7, we first have to take a little bit of a step back to where AJ helped us lead off last week in verses 5 and 6. Because where we ended in verses 5 and 6 gives us an entry point into where we're going here now in verse 7. So if you remember, this isn't going to be on your screen, but if you have your Bible open, and like I said, page 907 in the Pew Bibles, we're going to take a little bit of a glance back to where we ended last week at the end of verse 5, and then throughout verse 6, because it's in these verses that Paul first lays out this idea of a contrast with the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So look back at verse 5 with me, and you can read along about halfway through verse 5, and it says this, but our sufficiency is from God. Remember what A.J. talked about last week, that God has made us as believers sufficient in Christ. Therefore, we can have confidence. Therefore, we can have boldness to not only believe in Christ, but display Christ to the world around us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of what? What does it say there? To be ministers of what? To be ministers of the new covenant. What in the world is Paul talking about here? It's, it's here that he gives us a running start into the passage that we're going to look at in verses 7 through 18. Keep reading with me. He's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. You see, already in verse 6, Paul begins to make a comparison and a contrast between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Between this covenant that says it's by the letter and the New Covenant that's by the Spirit. The Old Covenant kills, but the New Covenant gives life. A pretty stark and astounding contrast that we're going to see between these two covenants that Paul lays out for us. Now look with me as we investigate and think about the three distinct and specific contrasts that Paul's going to make in verses 7 through 12, 7 through 11, about comparing and contrasting the two covenants. Read with me in verses 7 and verse 8. 
It says, now if the ministry of death, there it is again, carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? You see the comparison here that Paul is saying the old covenant was a ministry of death and the new covenant is a ministry of the Spirit. The old covenant did come with a measure of glory and we're going to see that here in a minute in Exodus 34. But the new covenant came with greater glory. You see the old covenant was a covenant of law. The new covenant is a covenant of grace. The old covenant was a covenant that was written on stone tablets as God himself wrote the law on the stone tablets. But the new covenant was written on the human heart. The old covenant, you see, was external, and the new covenant is internal. The old covenant was mediated by Moses as Moses represented the people of Israel, and he stood between God and the people of Israel. The new covenant, who's our representative? Yes, great Sunday school answer and right on. Who's our representative? Jesus. We no longer have Moses that stands between God and the people, but we have Jesus that stands between God and us. There's a distinction and a contrast between the two covenants. The old covenant, as we see here in verses 7 and 8, was a covenant of death. And the new covenant was a covenant of the Spirit who gives life. What Paul is saying here is we, people of God in the New Testament, are people of the new covenant. No longer people of the old covenant. No longer having to obey the law to obtain some level of righteousness, which we could never obtain. But we're under grace and mercy and the very spirit of God. You see, what Paul is doing, if you remember our study in 2 Corinthians, is he's still trying to validate his ministry to his detractors, to those who came against him and said, Paul is not worthy to be teaching these things. And Paul is saying, my sufficiency is in Christ. I am a minister of the new covenant, which is through Christ by his spirit and certainly valid. You see, doing ministry that delivers the good news of hope, the good news of forgiveness, the good news of salvation, the good news of reconciliation between a holy God and sinful men, is not this covenant far greater than the covenant of the ministry of the law and death and condemnation. You see, Paul is referring here back to the giving of the law to Moses. If you have studied at all the Old Testament, you'll be familiar with the story. And maybe some of you are here and not so familiar with the Old Testament. But this happens in the, uh, the uh, chapter, chapters in Exodus. We're going to look at Exodus 34 in a minute. But let me give you a little run up to the story that Paul's alluding to. You see, as you remember that Moses went up to Mount Sinai to receive the covenant, to receive the law that God himself wrote the law on stone tablets and he gave it to Moses for Moses then to present to the people of Israel and said, you as my people are to obey this law. And if you do so perfectly, which none of them could, and therefore the penalty was death. And here Moses is on the mountain of Mount Sinai and God writes the law on stone tablets. And meanwhile, the people of Israel who were not allowed to come up on the mountain because of the exposure to God's glory, they remain down in the camp 
And Moses was gone 40 days and 40 nights. And the people of Israel were like, where did our leader go? What is he doing? I thought he was going to go represent God and then bring God's word to us. And, and we don't know where he is. And they became impatient. And their hearts hardened. And you remember what they did. Instead of waiting on the law of God to be presented to them, they formed their own God. They took off their jewelry, jewelry of gold, and they fashioned it together into a golden calf. And they said, we don't know where our leader is, but we're just going to worship the golden calf. And about that time, Moses comes down from the mountain with his tablets of stone. And in, in great frustration, he sees that his people, the Israelites, were forming their own idol and worshiping this golden calf. And in his frustration, he slammed the testimony, the tablets on the ground, and they crashed and crumbled. Not only was Moses angry, but God's anger burned against them, and he threatened to wipe out the nation of Israel. But what did Moses do as the mediator, the one who stood between the people of Israel and God? Moses interceded. Moses interceded on behalf of the Israelites. He said, God, please don't cast them out. Please don't punish them. Please don't annihilate them. God, would you spare them? As you know the story, God went up, Moses went up to the mountain a second time. And God, in his grace and in his patience and in his forbearance, wrote out the laws of the testimony yet again on stone tablets. And this time, not only did Moses come down off the mountain with another set of stone tablets, but he also came down with a display of God's glory on his face. Because Moses was so bold to ask God, God, I want to see your glory. That's a bold request to come into the presence of the glorious, majestic, and God of splendor. And God said, I can't show you the entirety of my glory, Moses. But what I will do is hide you in the cleft of a rock. And as my glory passes in front of you, I will allow you to see the backside of my glory as it passes you. And even that deluded glimpse of the glory of God so resonated on the face of Moses that when Moses came down off the mountain, his face shone with the glory of God. Can you imagine? It says literally the skin of his face was radiant. Why don't we take a look at that passage so that if you've never been there, you can understand exactly what Moses is talking, what Paul's talking about. It's on page 70 in your pew Bible. It's Exodus 34. We're going to start in verse 29. Exodus 34, starting in verse 29. Let you have just a minute to find that passage. This is the account that Paul was referring back to that really sets up the comparison between the two covenants. He says, when Moses came down, starting in verse 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, <clears throat> as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Imagine that. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, what did he do? He put a veil over his face. Whatever Moses, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, 
the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. This is the radiance of the glory of God. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with them. So Paul here in 2 Corinthians is reflecting back on this incident that happened in Exodus 34 where Moses' face shone with the glory of God and yet he had to veil it. He had to veil it for fear that if the people of Israel gazed long at the intensity of God's glory, they would not be spared. So as a form of protection, Moses put a veil over his face. And what Paul's going to do in these few verses here, in these three comparisons, is he's going to use an art of rhetorical argument called the lesser to the greater. The lesser to the greater. And what Paul is going to do here is explain that if something is true of the lesser, then therefore it has to be true of the greater. So in this section right here, Paul is saying that God's glory was revealed in the covenant of death. How much more will his glory be revealed in the covenant of life? If it's true of the lesser, then it has to be true of the greater. Help, let's, let's, let me help you understand this a little bit. Um, some of you, for Father's Day, may go to a really nice steakhouse. Uh, some of you may go to Outback. And if when you go to Outback, some of you are saying, he just dissed on my favorite steakhouse. If when you go to Outback and you eat the filet mignon, you think that filet at Outback was delicious, then I can guarantee you that if you get the filet mignon at Hall's, you're going to think it's the best steak you ever had. That's two sermons, two references to Hall's. Okay, mark that down. I told you I don't work for them and I don't. But it's the argument of the lesser to the greater. If you like the steak at Outback, for sure you're going to like the steak at Hall's. Or I could put it this way, if you think it's hot and humid in Charleston, South Carolina, then I guarantee you, you will think it's hot and humid in Bangkok, Thailand, or in Cambodia. So it's the argument from the lesser to the greater. If it's true in Charleston, maybe you've never been there, but I guarantee you, you'll think it's hot and humid in Thailand. See, Paul is using this art of argument from the lesser to the greater, that if the old covenant ministry of death came with glory, which it did, How much more will the new covenant ministry of the Spirit? And he's going to use this same argument three times. The first was comparing ministry of death to a ministry of life. We'll read further in verses 9 and 10 to see the next comparison. Verse 9, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. A lot of glory going on in those two verses. Matter of fact, in this section of Scripture, in these four verses that we're looking at currently, there's seven references, no, there's ten references to glory. Four of them are in these two verses. And in the entire section from 7 to 18, there's 12 references to God's glory or the fact that God is glorious. But here we see another comparison from the lesser to the greater. You following it? That Paul says right here, for if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, then how much more the ministry of righteousness. There was glory in the ministry that condemned the people of Israel because none of them in no way, shape, or form could keep the law and keep it perfectly. In James, we understand that. James teaches us that if we fail at one point of the law, 
we are guilty of breaking all of it. Is anyone bold enough to say that they've kept every commandment perfectly? I didn't think so. If we failed at one point of the law, we are guilty of breaking all of it. But this idea is that God's glory was displayed in the Old Covenant and is displayed in a greater way in the New Covenant. But because this word is used repeatedly in this text, we've got to answer the question, what is God's glory? God is glorious. We worship his glory. Glory be to God. But it's not a term that we throw around in our vernacular that often unless we're speaking of the things of the Lord. The word glory comes from a Greek word and it's called doxa. The word doxa in Greek literally means an honor, renown, or splendor. And as we talk about God's glory, the thing that we have to understand is we're trying to find words to encapsulate the infinite God. And our finite minds are trying to comprehend the infinite God and all of his glory, and it's hard to find words to do so. But this word glory means God's infinite and intrinsic worth. Have you experienced the glory of God? But here Paul's making the comparison between the ministry of condemnation and the ministry of righteousness. You see this word condemnation is really a, it's a judicial term, which means it's the sentence handed down when someone is found guilty. Everybody who is exposed to the law with the requirement being perfect obedience, the sentence that was handed down on the Israelites and on us is guilty. Guilty is charged. Not to the degree that we were a good person, that's not the issue. The issue is, did you keep the law of God perfectly every single piece of it? And the sentence handed down to us, which is the word condemnation, is guilty as charged. You see, Isaiah 53, 6, the prophet Isaiah, he understood this idea. And he's writing in Isaiah 53 and he says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We all. And in this verse, all means all that we all have gone astray. We've all fallen short. We've all been unable to obtain to the perfect righteousness that God requires. And that's the ministry of condemnation displayed in the old covenant. But Paul's saying, but I get to be a minister of the new covenant of righteousness. And if you're a believer this morning, you understand that your righteousness has been given to you because of the work of Jesus on the cross, not because of your merit, not because of your morality, not because of your ability to be a good person, but because of the person and work of Jesus on the cross. Therefore, Paul's able to write in other places in Romans 1.17, he says, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Not a righteousness that is obtained by keeping the law, but a righteousness that is given by faith. In Romans 3, Paul goes on to write, but now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. You see, the law and the prophets look forward to a righteousness that would be given, not obtained. He goes on in Romans 3 to say the righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Do you believe in Jesus this morning? Do you believe that his righteousness 
has become your righteousness? Do you believe that when God looks at you to judge you, he doesn't see your inability to keep the law, he sees God's perfect righteousness that kept the law in perfection? And when he goes to look at me, he no longer sees me and my sin and my transgressions and my shortcomings, he sees Jesus. Because Jesus is my righteousness. And that's what allows us to be sufficient in Christ. One of my favorite verses, Romans 8.1, that pinpoints this comparison between the law of condemnation and the law of righteousness. And Paul teaches us in Romans 8.1 that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. How do you come into the service this morning? Do you come in heavy and weighted down by your sin? Do you come in beating yourself up because yet again you were unable to hold to the standard of Jesus that he wants for you? Do you come in thinking that my sin makes Jesus not love me as much as when I don't sin? Then you come in with a misunderstanding of the gospel. And what I want to communicate to you from the words of Paul in this text and in the text of Romans 8.1 is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The condemnation has been given out. The cup of God's wrath is empty. It was poured out on Jesus on the cross and there's none left for me and you if we have truly come to the place of repentance and faith. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So if you're living under the weight of guilt and condemnation, you need to be freed from that by the truth and the reality of the gospel. See, the glory of the ministry of righteousness is far superior to the ministry of condemnation. That it's as if the first had no glory at all. That's what he's saying here in these two verses in 9 and 10, that the new covenant is so glorious that in comparison, it's as if the first covenant had no glory at all. You've been there. You understand the concept. You know what it's like when you thought something was awesome until you experienced something better. You know, as a kid, I loved to snow ski. Now, being from the South, we don't get to snow ski that often. But the few times that I was able to go snow ski, and it was was glorious. Like, it was just a new sport, and the wind, and the speed, and the snow, and the wipeouts, and all this is going on. I just thought, "That's, that's the funnest thing I've ever done. But I'd only skied in like Tennessee and North Carolina. And then my freshman year in college, these guys invited me on a road trip to drive out to Colorado to go skiing. And now we're in Colorado skiing on the Rockies and it's a little bit different. The glory of skiing in Colorado far surpassed the glory of skiing North Carolina that it's as if skiing in North Carolina really isn't a thing. It's like they're all bunny slopes in North Carolina. But skiing in Colorado, different picture. It made, the, it made the first pale in comparison. And now that might be an irrelevant illustration for you, but let me try to bring a more modern day illustration to you, if you don't mind. Some of you saw Top Gun in 1986 and thought it was glorious. Did you not? I mean, Tom Cruise and jets and romance. What an awesome movie in 1986. But now you've seen Top Gun Maverick 
and Top Gun in 1986 pales in comparison to the glory that you see in Top Gun Maverick. Forgive me for pairing, comparing God's glory to uh, a modern day movie, but I figured I need to wake you up and you would get that one. So you understand that in comparison to the old covenant, which did display God's glory, it's, it's no comparison at all when we get to see glory in the person and work of Jesus and in the Holy Spirit that resides in us. It would be as if you took Moses' reflection of God's glory in Exodus 34 and stood him next to the transfiguration of Christ in Luke 9 and said, which is more glorious? No comparison. An argument from the lesser to the greater. Paul's desire here is not to nullify the glory that came through the old covenant, but to amplify the glory of the new covenant. And his third comparison is the comparison between the old covenant, which is temporary and transitory, and the new covenant, which is permanent. Look with me at verse 11. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, i.e. the old covenant, much more will what is permanent have glory. If what was true of the lesser, that the old covenant, which was being brought to an end, it was only temporary and transitory. It wasn't eternal. If that came with a display of God's glory, so much so that Moses' face shone with the glory of God, how much more the new covenant that is permanent. Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. When Jesus was talking to the disciples who were worried about his departure, and he was saying, but don't worry because I'm going to leave with you a counselor, a helper, a Holy Spirit that will be with you always. He says this in John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The new covenant reality of the Holy Spirit resides with us permanently, whereas the old covenant was transitory and temporary. The Holy Spirit, the Greek word is the paraclete, and it literally means the one who comes alongside and holds up. If you ever jump out of a plane, you're going to need a parachute. You're going to need something that comes alongside you or over you and holds you up. If you ever go paragliding, you're going to need a glider that comes alongside and holds you up. The paraclete, same root word, is the Holy Spirit, the one who resides in us and dwells in us and empowers us with God's very presence. So we see here a comparison of the ministry of death versus the ministry of the Spirit, the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness, and the ministry that is temporal with the ministry that is permanent. But now let's take a look at the results. What are the results or the effects of us being in modern day ministers of the new covenant as Paul was? We'll see four of them. The first is boldness. Boldness. Look at verses 12 and 13. Since we, we, Paul is, is letting the Corinthians know it's not just me, Paul, the apostle, but it's we, believers in Christ. So you Corinthians who have placed your faith and trust in Christ, this applies to you. You here at Citadel Square who have come to the place of surrendering to the Lordship of Christ and entrusting him with your life, you are now part of the we. And Paul says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that, the, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. We're not like Moses who had to veil the glory of God 
the result of us being ministers of the new covenant is, is Paul says, we, because we have such a hope, we are very bold. Now let me ask you a question. I was thinking about this. How would I fill in the blank on that? Since I have such a hope of his life, his spirit, his righteousness, his eternality, his permanence, since I have such a hope, I am very Give me another word that might fill in that blank because I wouldn't have used bold. I am very happy. I am very pleased because I have this hope. I am very satisfied because I have this hope. I am very content and thankful and secure because I have this hope in Christ. And all those are very true. But it's interesting that Paul says, because we have this hope, we are very bold. We are very bold. Bold in our faith. Bold in our witness for Christ. Bold in our display of his glory for others to see. Bold in our public profession of faith. Bold to share Christ with our family and our friends and our coworkers and those in our vicinity. Paul says the hope of Christ makes us very bold. Paul does not boast of his oratory ability or his personal strengths or his talents. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, he says, Brothers, when I came to you, I came to you with much fear. Same group of people. He was just writing to them earlier. I came to you with fear, with trembling. I did not come with wise and persuasive words is what Paul said. But what does he say? But I came with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I claim to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This morning, believer in Christ, do you know Jesus Christ and him crucified? If the answer is yes, then you have boldness. Boldness to step out of your comfort zone. Boldness to identify with Christ. And boldness to watch God work internally, just like he worked internally in your heart and mind. Do you see what Paul is saying to you here? Don't put a veil over the glory of God like Moses had to do. It's no longer required. We can display it outwardly, openly, courageously, and boldly. The second result not only is boldness, but is unveiling. Look at verses 14 through 16. We have received the unveiling of Christ, but their minds were hardened. For to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. New Testament believer, we have unveiled faces because the veil has been removed not by our own efforts, not by our ability to keep the law, but the veil has been removed, how? Through whom? It says clearly in this verse. Again, Sunday school answer, through Jesus. Yes, that's the answer. The veil has been removed through Christ. Not only has the veil removed, been removed that inhibits us from seeing God glor- God's glory, but the veil has been removed that would inhibit us from displaying God's glory. But to those whose hearts are hard, 
and refused <clears throat> to turn to the Lord in repentance and faith, the veil remains. To those who are blinded from seeing Jesus on every page of the Old Testament, the veil remains. To those who think that they can continue to earn God's favor by their works righteousness, the veil remains. And going back to last week, to those who rely on their self-sufficiency instead of their Christ-sufficiency, the veil remains. But to us, believer in Christ, the veil has been removed. How? Only through Christ, from this verse, and by turning to the Lord. Acts 4.12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The veil is taken away through and by Christ. And when we turn to the Lord, this is our command. Our command is to turn to the Lord. Our command is not to rip the veil off, but when we turn to the Lord, the veil is removed. One is active on our part. The other is passive on our part. It happens to us. Have you turned to the Lord in repentance and faith? If this is the old covenant way of works and right and self-righteousness and self-sufficiency, and this is Jesus, the, the, the default of our heart is we're walking this way in dependence on self. My sin, my desires, my guilt, my condemnation, my self-sufficiency, and Jesus is calling me to turn to Jesus. And do you see what happens? When I turn to Jesus, I simultaneously turn away from the law. I turn away from works righteousness. I can't have it both ways that when I turn towards Christ's sufficiency, I automatically have to turn away from self-sufficiency. And that's my call is to turn to the Lord. And Jesus says, the veil is then removed. Just as the curtain to the Holy of Holies. You remember only the high priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies where God's glory resided. And there was a veil in the temple that covered the rest of the temple from this one area of the temple that was the Holy of Holies. And when Jesus spoke his last on the cross and he said, it is finished. If you read that carefully, it says the curtain of the veil of the curtain was ripped in two. And it signified that we now have access into the very holy presence of God because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. And just as the curtain was ripped in two, the veil was ripped off, and we now can stand in the presence of God. Have you ever thought about that when you pray? I, I have no right to be here. I can't believe that God is allowing me in this moment access into the holy presence of God. How could it be? Because Jesus said it is finished. Because the, the veil was torn off and I can stand in the presence of God uncondemned. Do you remember when that veil was lifted for you? Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, I, I think the veil's still there. I, I'm still trusting in myself. I still believe that God's somehow pleased with my works and so I try harder every day. And I want to urge you and invite you this morning to turn to the Lord, to turn to Jesus. You don't have to worry about ripping off the veil. All you have to worry about is turning. And Jesus is going to rip that veil off and usher you into the presence of God without any condemnation whatsoever. The next thing we obtain is freedom. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? 
freedom. I want you to say it out loud. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. One more time. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Just sound like a movie clip. You know the movie. Freedom. When the Spirit enters our lives, we have freedom. We have freedom from the rigid requirements of the law. We have freedom to behold God's glory. We have freedom to walk in complete and eternal forgiveness. We have freedom from fear. Freedom from the punishment and curse of the law. We have freedom. Believer in Christ, do you know what it's like to be free in Christ? For those of you who've never experienced that, the offer is there for you to experience freedom and full acceptance and forgiveness in the presence of a holy God. John 8.32 says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, the Bible says that Christians are bound to sin, that they are slaves to iniquity and unrighteousness. But when we come to Christ, the chains are released and we become a slave to righteousness because of Christ. Titus 2, 11 through 13 says, for the grace of God, which brings salvation has appeared to all men. And it, the grace of God, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. That the gospel gives us the power to say no to sin. Christians only have freedom to sin. And we have freedom not to. And that's the beautiful difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. That the new covenant comes with it, the enabling, empowering of the spirit to say no to sin. And lastly and most beautiful, the other result is transformation. That's why the title of this message is Transformational Glory. The glory that appears to us through Christ, by his spirit, will bring transformation to your life. Do you believe that this morning? Verse 18, and we all, there it is again, all, we all, all who have put their, place, their faith and trust in Christ, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from where? There it is again. It comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. But I want you to get this point, maybe the most profound and impactful point of this verse. And that's the reality that beholding precedes transforming. You see that in verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, what do we do? We behold the glory of God. And when we actively, that's our part, behold the glory of God, what happens somewhat passively to us is we're transformed into his likeness. So what are you called to do? What am I called to do? I'm called to behold the very glory of God. How are you beholding the glory of the Lord? Here are some ways we can do it. When we worship, when we sing, when those instruments are played and guiding us into the very presence of God, we behold his glory. Have you ever stopped while we're singing and just closed your eyes and thought, right now I am worshiping the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the sovereign creator over the entire universe. And he allows me 
to come into his presence without annihilating me. (gasps) We behold him in worship. We behold him through his word. When his word is read, when his word is taught, when his word is exposited, then we are beholding God's glory because it's in his word that he reveals himself to us. Are you beholding God's glory? See, that's active. When we come and hear God's word, we have an active part to play and our active part to play is to behold his glory. We behold his glory through prayer. When he invites us into his presence and we commune with him and we speak to him and lay out our hearts before him and listen to him speak to us in prayer, then we behold his glory and it's transformative. And we behold him through community. When I get to sit down with you and hear what God is doing in your life, it causes me to see God's glory through his faithfulness in you. When you share with me something that God's teaching you through his word, I get to behold God's glory because I know that that wouldn't be possible without an infinite, eternal God making his presence known to you through his word. And now I get to behold God's glory. We do it in worship and in the word and in prayer and in community. And as a result, we're being transformed. We're being transformed. Believer in Christ, what has changed in your life from six months ago? How are you more like Jesus today than you were six months ago? Great question to think about. That word transformed is a fascinating word because it's two Greek words. It's the word meta, which means change after, to change after being with. And it's the word morpho, morpho, sorry. Meta and morpho combined to give us this word transformation. Meta means to change from within or change from being with and morpho means to change from within. So put those two words together and it means to change from within having been with. When we're with Jesus and we behold his glory, a metamorphosis, that's where we get the word, changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly, that type of change happens when we behold his glory. Our part is beholding. His part is transforming. And when we put ourselves in the presence of God, we're being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. First John says this in a different way. He says, dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. Have you ever thought about that? What will I be like when I'm transformed into his image? Well, John didn't know either. He said, what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. One thing I know for sure is that when Jesus comes back or when I die, whichever comes first, I'm going to be made into the image of Christ. I'm going to be like him. And so are you. So church, I'm going to end with this. What if we made it our goal? Because of the truth of the scripture that we're being transformed to his glory from one degree of glory to another and I am going to be made like him in his presence. What if we made it our goal to be so much like Christ on that day that the least amount of transformation would be necessary? How would that change the way that you live? How would that change the decisions that you make? How would that change the people that you spend time with and invest in? How would that change your priorities? God, I know that I'm gonna be transformed into your image, 
But instead of kicking back and going, I'm just going to live like I want to because I know I'm going to be like Jesus anyway. That's one choice you could make. Or you could say, I'm going to make it my passion, my goal, my desire to do everything I can doing my part to be so much like Christ on that day when he returns or I go to see him that the least amount of transformation would be necessary. Church, could we make that our goal? The new covenant is far more glorious than the old covenant. And the results of being in the new covenant are we have boldness. The veil has been lifted. We have freedom and we're being transformed. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for our hope that is found in Christ. Thank you for the reality, <laughs> God, that e even now as we get ready to sing, you, you, you're welcoming, welcoming us into your presence. And, and we don't deserve to be there were it not for the blood of Christ shed on the cross for us. And God, I just want to take a minute and pray that if there's anybody here this morning that has not experienced that freedom, that is still walking under the weight of works righteousness, that is still trying to earn their salvation by their good works or their morality, that God, this morning you would set them free. And even right now in this prayer, they would turn to you, Jesus, and that you would remove the veil. God, would you do that this morning? If you're here this morning and God is speaking that to you, would you just say, God, I need you and I turn to you right now in faith and repentance. Would you remove the veil because I wanna see you. I wanna know you. I wanna glorify you. God, we worship you this morning and we thank you for the privilege of doing so. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.